You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For July 8th, 2020, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. In April of this year, filmmakers Michael Moore, Jeff Gibbs, and Ozzie Zayner released a film titled Planet of the Humans, which was roundly criticized by everyone involved in energy transition. Literally dozens of articles and blog posts rightly took the filmmakers to task for their critiques of renewables and energy transition more generally, which was clearly more than a decade out of date. Some critics of the film focused on defending several high-profile champions of energy transition from a decade ago, such as Bill McKibben and Van Jones, while others called for it to be removed entirely from YouTube, where it was launched after failing to obtain normal theater distribution. That, in turn, set off a whole secondary conversation about whether champions of renewables were trying to censor the film, the filmmaker's right to free speech, and the exercise of deplatforming more generally. But I had a very different take on it. Even just from the trailer of the film and the subsequent chatter about it, it was obvious to me that this film was, in fact, wildly out of date. I figured that eventually dozens of others would critique it on those grounds, which they did, and that I wouldn't need to do a show about it. But then, instead of making a stir and then fading away, as I hoped it would, it became clear that the film had succeeded in doing some real damage to the cause of energy transition. A fair number of people were taken in by the film's unwarranted accusations against renewables and their champions, and had been convinced that wind and solar were some kind of ineffectual hoax. Then it came to light that opponents of energy transition in the oil and gas sector in particular had started using the film for their own purposes. And then I started getting urgent requests from friends and listeners to offer my own perspective on the film. And so I reluctantly decided to do an episode on this ridiculous film. But this isn't going to be a point-by-point debunking, although I certainly took enough notes on the film to do that. Instead, I'm going to explain what I think this film is really about, which isn't energy transition at all. It's something else entirely. And to help me elucidate this view, I'm very pleased to be joined by Alka Hoekstra, a Dutch energy analyst known for debunking attacks on energy transition. He's the owner of a small consultancy company called Zenmo Simulations in the Netherlands, and he's a full-time researcher at the Eindhoven University of Technology, where he leads a research program making agent-based models of zero-emissions energy and mobility systems. I've come to develop a deep appreciation for the insights and expertise he shares on Twitter, and I'm very pleased that he not only saw the same angle on this film that I did, but also that he has a well-developed critique of the point of view espoused by the filmmakers. So even if you've already read a debunking or two of the film, I know you're going to get something new out of this conversation. Then in the news segment, we'll take a look at a wind repowering project that is precisely the kind of project of which these filmmakers are apparently completely ignorant. We'll review two other exciting new offshore wind projects. We'll offer another coda on the failed nuclear plants that we discussed back in episode 62. And we'll note a bold new move to build EV charging infrastructure in Germany. And now our conversation with Alka Hoekstra, recorded June 4th, 2020. 
So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Alka, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you very much. You know, I want to begin this conversation with our respective reactions to The Planet of the Humans, the recent film written, produced, and directed by Jeff Gibbs and produced by Ozzy Zayner and executive produced by Michael Moore, which was released in April this year on YouTube and then removed over a claim of copyright violation and then re-released on Vimeo. But we're not going to spend much time critiquing the actual film because there just have been so many other reactions and critiques which listeners can find in the show notes of the episode if they want to log into our our website and check those out. So I just don't think much more of that is really needed. Instead, what I want to talk about here is what I think this film is really trying to do and the point of view it represents and what that means for people who care about energy transition, because I think that's a much more interesting and important story than this film. So with your forbearance, Alka, I'm going to be a very rude host here and ask you to wait a few minutes while I just kind of give an overall assessment of the film. And then we can directly address a few more of the critiques of renewable energy. Uh, Yeah, I fully agree so far. And let's just get this out of the way and look at the overall perspective, because I agree with you, it's much more interesting than all the details they got wrong, basically most details they got wrong. Right. (laughs) Okay, great. So, you know, I watched the film and I took extensive notes. And although I have not interviewed any of the filmmakers personally, this is what I surmise really happened here. Jeff Gibbs got interested in renewable energy in the mid-2000s and somehow got it in his head that energy transition would be easy. Here's what one of his featured speakers says about an hour into the film. Obviously, the main factor is delusion. A lot of these environmental groups have been saying that all we have to do is, for instance, you know, switch our fossil fuel economy over to a few solar panels and windmills and we can continue living life, you know, as normal. This is a straw man, I think, that rears its ugly head over and over again in the film. Did you get the same impression? Yeah, it, over and over. It's. I thought it would be completely easy, and, and, and it isn't, so I've been lied to. Right. No, you haven't been paying attention. Right. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I've been following the energy transition since roughly 2001, so almost 20 years now, working professionally as a part of energy transition since 2003. And in that time, I have never, ever heard anyone say, that all we need to do is switch our fossil fuel economy over to a few solar panels and windmills and we can continue living life as normal. That's a straw man. But somehow, that's the idea that Gibbs got stuck in his head. I don't know how, but that's the idea he got. And then he found out that that wasn't true, that energy transition is actually quite difficult, especially given the technologies that existed 15 years ago, which seems to be the time period in which this film is actually rooted. Indeed, just a few minutes earlier in the film, Gibbs says... Why, for most of my life, have I fallen for the illusion green energy would save us? Why, indeed. That sounds like a personal problem to me. So, (laughs) apparently... Actually, if I can just interrupt here. What what struck me most when I looked at the movie, I already knew most of the movie was 10 years old, and otherwise I would have seen it immediately, of course. But it struck me how fast things have changed. What the movie is showing is already completely different from 20 years ago. But right now, it's completely different again. One thing I would like to emphasize here, this is possibly the biggest step in the history of mankind. I mean, we just had SpaceX, but still, this is really going from burning stuff, reinventing fire, as someone you know put it. (laughs) 
And I really felt when I, 10 years ago, like, wow, this is the greatest story ever told almost. This is big, this is gigantic. And there's this guy saying, oh, I thought we just had to put in a few windmills and solar panels and that will be it. And now we actually have to do something for this. Well, I'm out of here. And it's so strange. <laughs> yeah, it's very weird. So apparently he then discovered a few things that disabused him of that illusion that it was going to be easy, particularly about the many drawbacks of biofuels, which were being hyped beyond all reason by elected officials like George W. Bush and Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger around 2005. Right. But then, I'm guessing around 2008, Gibbs just stopped paying attention to what was actually happening happening in energy transition and instead launched off into this bizarre search for some sort of nefarious conspiracy about the motives and, and the funders of energy transition solutions. Again, all of them rooted in what was happening around 15 years ago. And then he continued doggedly down this path with the conspiratorial view supported by the merest suggestion of guilt by association to try to make the case that somehow energy transition is this faked up story underpinning ineffectual investments in renewable energy because some of those solutions are ultimately backed by billionaires. I mean, it's just a bizarre narrative. And, you know, yeah, that's something that returns in the movie all the time. He's rich and he's for it. So it must be bad. I right. Mean, that's not logic. <laughs> but at no point, apparently, did Gibbs or any of his colleagues or co-producers on the film ever attempt to understand what is actually happening today in energy transition or who's investing in it or how much progress it has made since 2008 or to put any of this in any kind of context. I mean, they didn't attempt to explore the many other solutions that play important roles in energy transition today, such as investments in efficiency and grid management technologies and flexible demand side technologies or anything else. It's as though his clock stopped in 2008 and he's lived in this weird fantasy about the flaws of decades-old renewable technologies ever since with these visions of old broken wind turbines from the 1980s <laughs> haunting his dreams. Yes, those images were really old. <laughs> really old, about yeah. Broken windmills, yeah. yeah uh, really much older than 15 years even. So, yeah. you know, since I remember what the state of those technologies was 15 years ago when I was writing about energy transition professionally as a freelance journalist, I remember all the arguments for and against against energy transition that were being made circa 2005 to 2008. And so I instantly recognized that what I was listening to was that. It was ancient history. And I remember how little many people, including the so-called leaders of the Green Movement that he attacks over and over again in this film, actually knew about renewable energy back then. And I also know that everyone is just a whole lot more savvy now. Like, you'd never see Bill McKibben or anybody else say what they said 15 years ago today. If they <laughs> listen to a couple of your shows, they probably know much more than, than people in that movie, right? Well, exactly. So, on the whole, I found this film to be just an incredibly tedious and painful review of all the problems that we faced like 15 years ago, with absolutely no effort made to look at how totally different the state of energy transition and renewable technologies are today, nor any explanation as to why they didn't see fit to even try to update their view let alone why they thought a film about the state of energy transition 15 years ago was somehow relevant today. Because it's paid by billionaires, Chris. <laughs> and of course, because we have to cling to this really awful narrative. But we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I just want to give one example here among many that I could cite, just for those who may not have watched the film. They have this segment in which GM is unveiling the Chevy Volt back in 2008. 
Gibbs talks to a GM representative at this unveiling who wasn't really sure how Lansing, Michigan, where GM's auto plant is located, generates its power. And Gibbs talks to a representative then from the Lansing Board of Water and Light, which is the local utility, who says that their power is 95% provided by coal and who repeats a lot of moldy old beliefs about the intermittency of renewables. You know, again, the kinds of things that people said back then. And then Gibbs tries to imply that, therefore, transportation electrification is some silly joke. He makes no mention of the top electric car maker today, by far, because Tesla only released its very first car back in 2008, which is when Gibbs' clock apparently stopped. Instead, he features the Chevy Volt, a car that GM rolled out 12 years ago and then discontinued last year. I mean, this car doesn't even exist anymore. And as for Lansing's power supply, here's what it says on their website today. Quote, in 2016, Lansing Board of Water and Light worked with the Citizens Advisory Committee to determine how to replace the coal-fired Eckert power station set to retire in 2020. Under the plan, the BWL has committed to 30% clean energy by 2020 and 40% by 2030, which means improved air quality and environmental health and a reduction of greenhouse gas emissions by 80% by 2025. This plan continues the BWL's innovation and leadership in moving away from coal to a cleaner energy portfolio that's also affordable and reliable. Hmm. Doesn't exactly sound like a 95% coal-powered grid to me with a totally clueless view of the future. But I suppose, again, it would have been very inconvenient to their narrative if the filmmakers actually, you know, looked at what it says on the website of Lansing Board of Water and Light today (laughs) before releasing this film. Just so what we have here is they talked to some guys 15 years ago, basically, yeah, not experts or something, but just guys that they met on the street. Those guys say, oh, yeah, we, have, we use a lot of coal or something. And then they think, oh, well, that sort of does it for the coming 15 years. We're safe. They get into their diesel car, start cruising around and reminiscing about how this really, really doesn't work anyway. I mean, it's so lazy. It's so outdated he's not even trying to get the best experts and and yeah Yeah. and all the fact that he does it all this from his diesel car i mean it's also very (laughs) sort of strange to me yeah cruising around and complaining about emissions okay exactly so (laughs) the whole film is rooted in the past and for reasons i just cannot fathom the filmmakers clearly made no effort to update their understanding of energy transition to the present let alone to the very promising trajectory it is now taking into the future so now with apologies for this long preamble i want to let you speak i mean what was your impression of it more broadly well, we already said that it was a little bit of a lazy movie and that it's really strange to have this guy cruising around 15 years ago in his diesel and, and talking to random people and getting a sort of a very bad narrative from that, that billionaires somehow make it all wrong. But I think it's interesting to get beyond that and to think, of what is it really, really telling us? For me, there are a couple of different angles to this. The first is this idea that wind, solar, and biomass don't have any negative side effect whatsoever and will instantly create a sort of a pastoral way of life. There's also, he has this idea that it has to be really beautiful. He lived in this house that is sort of made in the middle of the woods. And I get the impression that if it doesn't magically place all places in the middle of the woods, it's not good enough. And when that doesn't happen, we're being lied to. I mean, (laughs) it's so silly. It really is. Yeah. One thing I would like to say that I'm more nuanced about, so I basically think the whole movie is really bad. 
but I am a little bit more nuanced about biofuels. We also talked about it was beyond all reasonable expectations 15 years ago, also because it was seen as the answer also for conservatives to problems that we had in the Middle East without having to look at renewables or something. Right. But I do think the criticism of biomass is directionally correct. So, I mean, biomass, I found out, is something we have to be very, very careful with. It's limited on this beautiful earth we have. And if we burn it all in power plants and cars that we have now, that's not a good idea. I have a very long chapter in my first book about this. And palm oil, a lot of people still sort of condone it, for example. And I think that that's really, really bad. But I also think we're beyond that now. I mean, most of the people we quote really wouldn't say those things these days again. So he's basically, he's not only attacking a straw man, he's attacking a straw man from 15 years ago. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, you know, I couldn't agree more. And as I said in my opening remarks, I remember the ridiculous assertions that were being made about biomass and hydrogen 15 years ago with this whole hype about the hydrogen economy and so on. For example, in 2006, I blogged a VentureBeat article by Tad Patzak, who was a professor of civil and environmental engineering at UC Berkeley at the time. And that article carefully walked through the impossible math that would be required to realize the ambitions of California Proposition 87 and the idea behind that proposition was to impose a severance tax on oil extraction and then use that money to fund investments in alternative energy programs. And Patsek snidely suggested that to really make the most of all feedstock residues, quote, I suggest also process fresh corpses into biofuels. Because, of course, the math on ethanol just didn't work, even though the federal and state governments were subsidizing it to the tune of about $3 billion a year at the time, which I guess made everybody think it was real. Ethanol has always had much more of a political interest than interest from energy experts, as far as I could tell. True. Yeah, yeah, completely agree on that. My next criticism, in the film, there's a lot of talk about capitalism. And the straw man basically claims we know fossil fuel is run by evil corporations, but everyone working on clean energy has a pure heart and doesn't do it for profit, as if that is the case. And then the movie makers find out there are billionaires and companies involved that are working for profit, and then all of a sudden it's all bad or something. And to be quite honest, I'm, I also find it interesting to talk to an American about this because I'm from the Netherlands, where we're basically adjoining Scandinavia in this middle where we're rich, but not exactly right-wing or capitalistic, I would say. Uh, I studied public administration back in the day. And for me, this idea that it's either capitalism or government is is so strange. I mean, this idea that capitalism should somehow be moral. I mean, of course, capitalism is amoral. It's like, like a hammer or a nail or a gun or whatever. It's not moral at all. It's how you use it that counts. And also the fact that people want to make money. Yeah, I would say that's one of the biggest advantages we have at the moment, that renewable energy is getting a good way to make money. So this idea that they also have that's a competition between companies and capitalism on the one hand, which is bad, of course, and yeah, nothing on the other hand, basically, but still bad. They had this idea also of Reagan, you know, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you, most scary words you've ever heard. <laughs> no, no, the government can help you. For example, caring about climate change is not something that you can ever expect any 
company to do beyond its profit line, the investors simply wouldn't tolerate it. But if you make a combination, if you say, okay, we have a for-profit company here, it makes really good solar cells, now make sure that we ask for them to put those solar panels in the right places, that they watch out for the environment when they create them, et cetera, et cetera. That's the combination you're looking for. It's like playing sports and then saying, you have to choose between the players and the referee. And I would say, no, you, you need them both. The players do most of the work, but the referees really help. So yeah. that's something that really annoyed me in the movie. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I never understood the argument that just because a wealthy person like Al Gore is investing in something that it's somehow tainted or not a genuine solution. You know, the way that Gibbs attacks all these people just makes no sense at all to me. As if whatever Michael Bloomberg was investing in back in 2005 somehow represents the totality of an industry that is now measured in the hundreds of billions of dollars annually <laughs> worldwide. Or as if energy transition would somehow be better off now if investors like Vinod Kosala had not made any investments in the sector 15 years ago. I mean, it's just incoherent. What else did you react to here before we move on? His next point that he attacks at length is green leadership. They're all bad. And of course, green leadership is also opportunistic. And of course, looking back, you and I also think that, for example, the support for biofuels of the Sierra Club and McGibbon and Agor, yeah, was not such a good idea. But First of all, they agree with that now. So who right. are you attacking? Right. And second of all, this idea that if you can find some sort of even small problem with leadership that, that sort of condemns them forever is, of course, really, really stupid. But I must say that he found some interesting examples that we now look back on and think, yeah, we learned a lot. There was really not a way to do it. So, yeah. I give him that point. <laughs> yeah. Mistakes were made 15 years ago. Okay, great. Exactly. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. Clearly, it's, again, another perspective from at least a decade ago. And I think all of those people, you know, Al Gore and Bill McKibben and Van Jones and Richard Branson and all the other people he attacks, you know, they've all learned a lot more about energy and have become much more aware of the pros and the cons of every solution since then, as have we all. It's not like exactly. it's not like we knew exactly the right thing to do 15 years ago. But I think it's telling that those are the figures that Gibbs chooses to attack because they were the big names in the green movement 15 years ago. Today, you almost never hear any of their names associated with anything that's happening in energy transition because, well, they're not the key players anymore. So what did you think, I'm curious, of, of Gibbs' critique of wind and solar specifically? Yeah, well, you know me, and I think wind and solar, basically solar and wind is the first derivative, you could say, of solar. The big energy developments of the past, let's say, 20, 30 years or something. And I think they have a future. I think they are by far the cheapest way to produce energy in the near future in many places already. I'm personally not against nuclear, but I think it's simply pretty expensive compared to wind and solar. So I'm really bullish about that. But they do point to some, I think, real problems that we have with solar and wind, because of course, they need a lot of materials. And when you get those materials can make a a big difference and also recycling is needed and also for example if we claim land for windmills or solar panels we should be sure that we use that land for a longer while actually very nice example in the movie 
was that they visited a site for solar and they thought, oh my God, it's turned into a desert. This is bad. And the solar panels are not even there anymore. And this same site now has new solar panels. So they were sort of in between <laughs> at that moment. But yeah, if we use certain real estate for wind and solar, we should do it wisely. And we should also look at where we get the stuff. So basically that's saying in jargon that we should take total uh, life cycle analysis into account. So I think also that's where we see sort of the policy discussions moving, that it's going beyond just less CO2 to, hey, let's look at the complete life cycle analysis. But actually, we're doing this really, really well. I mean, I'm also amazed at how well, for example, the experts in the government that I work with a lot are listening to the experts on energy and the experts on renewable energy. For example, it's still hard for them to say no to the to agricultural lobby now and then regarding biomass. And when the, the prime minister of Malaysia makes a stink for refusing palm oil, they have to treat it with some diplomacy, but it's really sunk in. They know what's what. Yeah, we're not stupid when it comes to renewable policy, I think. So I'm hopeful. Yeah, also, you know, they were, again, this is a fairly common trap that I see some people fall into. They're seizing on this issue of the materials demands that making solar panels and wind turbines involves, but doing it in isolation, doing it as if that was only a problem with building wind turbines and solar and wasn't a problem that involves every aspect of energy. I mean, I guess the way I think about this is that every technology, every energy source that we use has some environmental impact. So we should be asking whether this is better than that. For example, whether it's better to produce electricity from solar and wind than it is from coal or to drive an EV instead of a petroleum-fueled car. But people like these filmmakers never ask any of those questions. They just get their noses bent out of shape because the green technologies aren't perfect and zero impact, which no one should ever think they would be. And then they start bashing them without ever asking, what's the alternative? Exactly. So, you have, for example, electric vehicles. I'm sort of famous on Twitter for always bashing those stories that say electric vehicles emit more CO2. At the moment in, in Europe, they emit about one third of the CO2. But of course, you can approach it as saying... Yeah, uh, they still emit CO2 and then hop in your diesel car and drive away as Gibbs does. But I think that's so so transparently childish, basically. It's not even evil or something. It's just childish that you cannot see that you apparently want this car and that you have two alternatives. The second alternative is three times better or one third as bad. And somehow that's not good enough for you. So you get back in your diesel. I mean, yeah, how old are you? <laughs> Yeah, and to your point about that scene from the solar farm in Daggett, I mean, Ozzy Zayner there peddled one absurd falsehood after another in this film. And the filmmakers made no effort to even speak to anyone who might be able to correct all the nonsense that Ozzy was saying. I mean, I actually laughed out loud at the point in the film when they visited Daggett, California, which was the site of a demonstration thermal solar power tower plant in 1981. Hi, you got all the details. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't say any of this. And then another solar pilot project, which is called Solar 2 in 1995. Now, those were demonstration plants. They were the very first of their kind, which the Department of Energy built to try to test out a new technology. And both were demolished by 2009. And there's Ozzy wandering the site, apparently astonished that these nearly 30-year-old demonstration plants had been demolished and commenting on how sand dunes in the Mojave Desert were some sort of (laughs) 
evidence that solar power was just a dream. I mean, it was just utterly absurd. And then yeah. going on and on about the challenges that the Ivanpah plant had, which was essentially another first-generation plant, that CSP technology at that scale, with absolutely no context. And like not mentioning at all that these dozens and dozens of highly productive and cost-effective utility-scale solar PV plants were located today within a few hundred mile radius of where he was standing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's a good detailed sort of expose on that. I also like the scene where he shows that coal is used to melt quartz. <laughs> oh my God, it's quartz, it's not sand. <laughs> and that is then used to make solar panels. And that gas plants are used in the CSP. So apparently this old plant, it sort of heats up the stuff they pump around a little bit with gas before they start the day, which of course is just a very small amount of energy to keep the whole plant running. But again, the childish guy says, emits CO2, it's not completely ideal, so end of story. And I think here we come to the meat of the issue. There's an almost religious fervor against any industrial society, complete disinterest in doing actual calculation. It's about purity, about ideals. And it's not about making a real impact on climate change or biodiversity or any other metric. It's just a childish guy who says, I want it to be perfect and without any problems, and it's got to be automatic, and I still have to have all my luxuries, and if you can't make that happen, I'm out of here. And I'm out of here basically means I'm not going to change anything. It's not that he's sort of going to hang himself or start a utopian society. No, it's just he's going to say, to tell to everybody that you lie to him. It's so childish. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And as you say, making all this critique while driving around in a fossil-fueled car. Exactly. Okay, so great. I think that's the perfect place to depart from our critique of the film and start tackling what I think this is really about. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities.
So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. In a fine example of the kind of progress that was so obviously missing from Planet of the Humans, global energy company Brookfield Renewal Partners has submitted a plan to dismantle 460 small, aging wind turbines from the 1980s that are a part of one of the oldest commercial wind farms in the country, and replace them with just 11 new turbines that will be able to generate the same amount of electricity. The hundreds of old wind turbines, which are many years beyond their useful life, are scattered around the San Gorgonio Pass near Palm Springs, California, and are located located on federal land. The Federal Bureau of Land Management is now considering whether to approve the Mesa Wind Repower Project, and a draft environmental assessment is currently out for public comment. Item 2. The U.S. now has its first offshore wind turbine in federal waters. On May 26th, the North American unit of the world's leading offshore wind developer, Denmark's Orsted, announced the installation of the Siemens Gamesa 6-megawatt turbine 27 miles offshore. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.